Hey, church, remember when you were kids and it was fun to kind of figure out, you know, sides in the game and how are you going to decide something? And so if I, if I do something like this, you tell me what it is. You know that game. Rock, paper, scissors. And rock beats scissors. And scissors beats... But paper beats... You get the idea, right? Rock, paper, scissors. And as if um, sort of... I'll use it again, throwing rock, paper, scissors, right, with you and your friend, um, may mean that your partner throws paper and you threw rock and therefore they're right and they beat you. You can always say two out of three, right, and try it again. How do you decide? How do you make decisions? It's a fun game. I saw this really, really uh, funny video where um, clever educators teaching physical education in elementary school set up this course, two sides. They have to jump through these hoops and see who can make it all the way to the other team's side before the other team does. And so they jump through the hoops until they, until they meet each other in the middle. They do rock, paper, scissors. Whoever wins gets to keep going, the other one has to step aside, and then they battle back and forth. You ever seen this before? It looked like such great fun. I thought, we should try that in church. We'll set up a bunch of hula hoops, and we can jump through them, and everybody can do rock, paper, scissors. Or we could just make it easier, like sometimes when you're trying to decide, it's easier to just... Does anyone carry coins anymore? I'm not sure. I don't even have a coin. Remember when you could just reach into your pocket? You always had coins, loose change in your pocket, and you just pick it out, and you you say, okay, heads or tails, and you flip it, right? Heads. What do you call art? Heads or tails? He's calling heads, but it's tails. Aha! So I get to choose. That's the way it works, and then art will say two out of three, and we'll start it, and we'll do it all again. Uh, It gets more sophisticated the older we get. Have you noticed that I think one of the hardest decisions for people to make is this one? Where do you want to go for dinner? (laughs) I don't know what it is about that question, but no one wants to decide. I don't know. What do you want? I don't know. What do you want? I found the solution to this problem of deciding where to go for, for dinner. See this on the screen. This is genius. Someone should patent that and market it. I don't know if you can see on the screen there, but it's got the list of Applebee's and Papa John's and all these different places. And you just pull the lever and it spins around and stops and you'll get the name of a restaurant and probably the name of an, uh, or the sound of an animal. I think that's genius, right? How do you decide? How do you decide? I was thinking about that moment, usually in the car because you're waiting till you get in the car or you're leaving somewhere and it's dinner time and you look over and you say, where do you guys want to go for dinner? It doesn't matter if it's just you and your wife or it doesn't matter if it's you and a girlfriend. It doesn't matter if it's you and the family, the kids. It's always going to be this standoff. It's this sort of passive aggressive. Well, I don't care. Really? You really don't care? Oh, you choose. I I don't know. Back and forth. How do you decide? This 
this is a sermon at the end of this series on deciding. On deciding. And it turns out it really matters how you decide. So we've spent the last four weeks talking about this journey that we've called a journey of discernment. That's the word we used, a journey of discernment. Discernment is just sort of a a word with more letters (laughs) to say, decide. And maybe the word discernment matters rather than just saying decide, a journey to decide. We said a journey of discernment because discernment really takes it to another level, doesn't it? It's not just a decision to be made. It's one to be thoughtfully and carefully considered, discerned. It's a process. It's not easy sometimes. Discernment carries all of that kind of meaning. How do you decide? And we've said these things. We've said, let's listen to the story that Scripture tells on the whole and let that provide for us a direction, a trajectory. What is God doing? Who is God? Who are we? What is God up to in the world? What's the story that the Bible tells? Our journey of discernment to think about what it means to belong together, you and I, in the body of Christ, particularly as men and women in the body of Christ and how we are included and participate in the body of Christ. That's what this series has been about. In the beginning, we said, God created the world in God's own image. He created human persons in in God's own image. Created them for each other. And I'm telling you, this is a short version, but what we unpacked was that it is God's very nature, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God's nature is this togetherness. This unity, this ordering of life together. The stories that are told in the beginning about created ones, male and female, are characterized by notions of togetherness, alongside, with. That's the picture that's painted until the fall. And the descriptions of human relationships, male and female, after the fall, are no longer together, beside, but over. The language is enmity, and the language is rule over. That's the shift that comes precisely as a result of the fall, where sin enters the world, and humans are deceived. They're deceived about God, they're deceived about themselves, they're deceived about one another. The move is... Instead of men and women sharing life together for each other mutually, alongside each other, it's enmity and it's rule over, but that's a consequence of the fall and that the whole story that unfolds from that point forward is God's work, God's desire to restore human relationship in its fullness, to to restore relationship with God. That's God's redemptive work. He wants to be with us. He wants to be among us. He wants us to be with Him. And in human relationship, God is is restoring relationships, reconciling all things. This is being played out in Israel, even as Israel attempts to live its life out. It's revealed most fully in the story of Jesus. And we took some time to look at both the story of Israel, the story of Jesus, and the way that God is redeeming and restoring relationships, and in particular, empowering, recognizing, affirming, 
the humanity um, and the giftedness of women who in the story of the, story of the gospel um, play no small role, a prominent role in how Jesus' uh, life is countercultural in that it's affirming this. In the early Christian community, we saw instances where that is happening. In the descriptions written by Luke and by Paul and by others of this move, this redemptive restoring move, um, where, where rather than rule over, it's alongside. And we wrestled last week with those passages where Paul, in his own time and place, is trying to help the church navigate the difficult decisions around that. And he's giving instructions that almost seem to be contra that larger trajectory. Remember this? What do you do with that when Paul in one instance is affirming this move and in another instance seems to be um, moving the other direction? We've held all those things together. And today we're going to talk about deciding. This sermon is not about what we will decide, but this sermon is about how to decide. Not what, but how. And we're going to let the story of Scripture guide us here as well. So I want to invite us to camp out in the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostle, and specifically to find our way now to Acts, the 15th chapter. This is a pivotal moment when we hear this story of what's taking place in the life of early Christian community. In Acts 15, this is a pivotal moment. It's maybe, most scholars would say, maybe as much as, not likely more than, 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's not a long time, is it, Art? Art's sitting here on the front row on my right, so he gets to be my talking partner. That's not long. Many of us have, have been immersed in the life of the church for much longer than 20 years. It's just 20 years in, in Acts 15. It's 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's 20 years approximately after the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and falls upon them and and empowers the mission and the proclamation of the gospel as it begins to include more and more people. It's just 20 years when you get this uh, description. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the unbelievers, teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. You see what's happened? Just 20 years in, there's this pivotal moment where the question is, are the Gentiles included in the same way that the Jews are included in what God is doing in the world, in God's reconciling, redemptive project. This moment 
of deciding is important because in the space of that 20 years, in fact, this is how the, uh, the book of Acts begins, that the message, the gospel, the movement began to go out from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, right? You see that movement? Judea, located centrally, it's kind of the hub of Jewish life, to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. It's this outward movement that's being told in the book of Acts. And we come to this moment where a really pivotal moment that will shape the future of the movement. What do we believe God is up to now? That's their question. What do we believe God is up to now? I said that a little different. It's a kingdom moment in which they must decide. It's not inconsequential. One way of looking at it, if you study early church history and Scripture, is that what goes down in Jerusalem in Acts 15 really determines how the story plays out from that point forward. A decision's to be made. What do we believe God is up to now? I want you to understand that the practice of the people of God and their understanding of how Scripture informs that practice is this. Inclusion in the kingdom of God was conditioned upon faithfulness to the law. Right? And circumcision was the sign of covenant faithfulness. That's the practice That's how they read their Bible. For them, that was the Torah, the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets. And their interpretation informed their practice, and their practice was the keeping of the law as a condition of being included in what God is doing in the world and belonging to the people of God. Um, For that 20 years between the death and resurrection of Jesus... And the council at Jerusalem in Acts 15, it continued to be their practice for 20 years after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Okay, so 15.5 says, puts it this way, some of the believers said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider the question. That's why they call it, we call it the council at Jerusalem. They gathered together to discern, to decide. I want us to pay close attention to what happens when they meet to consider the question. This is Acts 15, verse 7, the first part of verse 7, a simple little phrase that I wanted to call out. After much discussion, Peter got up to address them. And it's the first phrase after much discussion because what we focus on is what did Peter get up to say But what we miss is what took place before Peter ever got up to say anything, right? After after much discussion. And I really just want to take a moment, if I were calling out, how does the church decide, and the teachings in Acts 15 on how the church decides, I would stop and say, first of all, there's a lot of discussion that goes on. And that's a good thing. You know, it doesn't tell us, I wish I knew, how the discussions went. (laughs) 
it doesn't tell us if, if in order for there to be a discussion, it had to include everyone. We don't have that kind of information. What we know is that an important part of the process leading to discernment was they discussed, they talked to each other, they made room to think and talk on these things. It is good, it is healthy, it is important, it is necessary. And I'm grateful that, oh, I I don't remember, it was um, months ago when the elders said, hey, we started a discussion a couple of years ago. Um, And then the pandemic happened and we were tending to each other and how we would live our life out and we had begun this discussion and it's kind of been going on. And the elders said, we're going to take 40 days to come back to that because we think it's important. And we're going to pray and, and reflect and study and discuss amongst ourselves for 40 Do you remember this? For 40 days, they said. We said, okay. They invited us, be praying for us. We're going to be doing this. And so we did. And then they came back around and in their wisdom said, ah, as we have discussed and reflected and prayed, we want to create more time for discussion and reflection And we're going to invite Stephen to help us navigate through that. And so uh, they asked me if I would be willing to help preach and teach through this series of five sermons after much discussion. After much discussion. Second thing I notice in the story is this. Peter comes forward to address them. After much discussion, Peter stands to address them. And he says this. This is the second half of verse uh, (laughs) 7. You know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. This is Peter speaking. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them For he purified their hearts by faith. I love that last phrase. He purified their hearts by faith. So Peter stands up and he begins to speak to them as they gather to discern, to decide, to reflect. What I believe is that what Peter is describing are the events that are recorded early in Acts in chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, you can flip back there if you have your Bible. If not, I'll I'll briefly give you the overview. In Acts chapter 10, there's a Gentile named Cornelius. He's a good man. Um, He looks after the poor, it says. Cornelius. And Cornelius receives a visit from an angel of God that says, I want you to send for Peter. So he says, okay, and he sends his servants to go and tell Peter that an angel of the Lord has told me to send for you to come to my house. While they're on their way, the servants, to fetch Peter, Peter is himself given a vision, remember? He's on the rooftop. And he's sleeping when he has a dream, and the dream is of a sheet And on the sheet is all kinds of food. 
all the kinds of foods that he had been taught in Scripture, in church slash synagogue, that he's forbidden to eat on the sheet. And he hears a voice that says, as the sheet is lowered down before him, take and eat. Right? Peter's thinking, well, what? That doesn't make any sense at all. He, he refuses, in fact. He says, I've been faithful to God and faithful to the law my whole life. It's disorienting, right? It seems contra to everything, everything he's been taught. Take and eat. Surely not, Peter says. And God says to Peter, do not call unclean anything that God has made pure. Peter returns with them to Cornelius' house. Cornelius comes out to greet him. That's the custom. As he sees his guest approaching, Cornelius comes out to greet Peter. He falls down before him. Peter says, no, no, stand up. Cornelius invites him into the house. And the minute that Peter steps across the threshold, something has fundamentally changed. Do you know why? Because Peter, all his life, has been taught, you don't walk across the threshold into a Gentile's house. He does, and Cornelius says, whoa, how is it? And, and Peter's words are, God has shown me in this vision, God has shown me I should not call anyone impure or unclean. This in Acts, you, I can't underestimate, is the reversal it's the change. Do you, hear, do you sense that? Understand that what Peter is reporting in Acts 15, when he stands up when they're deliberating, and he tells this story about what had happened with Cornelius back, and by the way, <clears throat> what happened with Cornelius is that he believes, the Holy Spirit comes on Cornelius, Cornelius is baptized in Acts 10. When Peter then, in the council in Jerusalem, tells that story, you know what he's narrating. He's narrating the story of his experience. This is what happened. It's the narrative of experience, a vision, a conversion story, the Holy Spirit, their baptism. This is what happened. I saw it with my own eyes. I heard it with my own ears over against, all right, stay with me, church, over against everything he had been taught in Scripture and the practice that he had embraced. That's what's going on, if you think about it. Fifteen, twelve. the whole assembly... I think this script, is this scripture up there? The whole assembly became silent. Maybe it's not. Verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to them tell about the signs and wonders that God had done, done among the Gentiles through them. As they began, all of them began to narrate, Peter and Paul and Barnabas and the others began to narrate what they had seen and heard. The whole assembly became silent. It's not an insignificant note. Let's take a moment. I'm, I'm reading again, right? 
when it says they became silent, they took a moment. I've preached for, I don't know, how many years now? 30, 40 years. And I can tell you, I recognize when I'm preaching those moments where um, in the space between us where God is present, that God has something to say, and you can feel it in the room. I'm telling you, you can feel it in the room. Most often, the characteristic of that is the place just feels really, really still and silent. When they began to narrate, this is what we've seen and heard that God is doing over against their past practice informed by Scripture and the teaching. There was silence. It was a moment. It was a moment. Third thing I want you to see is that they don't stop there with the narrative of experience. They come back to Scripture again. They come back to Scripture again. This is a James, one of those assembled there as a leader in the early Christian movement, the early church, with the others, James then spoke up. He broke the silence, and he began to connect the narrative of their experience with Scripture. He invited them to listen again to the witness of Scripture in light of the narrative of their experience. James is quoting the authoritative witness of the prophetic tradition in Acts 15, 16, and 17, specifically the prophet Amos, where uh, Amos is saying, uh, God is saying through the prophet Amos, I will rebuild, I will restore, so that all other peoples may seek the Lord. And then this line from Amos, even all the Gentiles. Oh, do you understand how suddenly they see and hear that differently now? Had they never heard the teachings of the prophet Amos? Well, they had heard the teachings of the prophet Amos. You hear them, you read them, yeah. Had they ever, when they read previously the prophet Amos, had they ever thought or experienced that that last phrase collides with how they understand and practice their life as the people of God? But now they did. Now they did. Amos, hundreds of hundreds of years prior to Acts 15 in the Jerusalem conference, right? Look, they come back, they revisit, they they draw the witness of Scripture forward in order to ask the question, what is God up to now? They are revisiting, and I'm going to use this phrase, reappropriating the witness of Scripture in light of the narrative of experience to discern what is God doing. Last thing I want you to notice, and maybe the most important thing here, is that the Holy Spirit is present and the Holy Spirit leads in this process. The Holy Spirit is present and leading in this process. When they come to decision and they begin to articulate a direction around this question, this is the church deciding at a pivotal moment. 
they use this phrase. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Just think, think about that for a moment. Just, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Both of these things held together, providing God's presence and direction. It means that we acknowledge that God is in our midst, and we also acknowledge each other. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit, and it seemed good to us. There is... Um, there is these four things. They discuss, they talk to each other. They take some time to talk to each other. They share on and reflect on what they have seen and heard. Their experience, it matters. God works through all that stuff. The Holy Spirit works through all that stuff. This is what we've seen and this is what we've heard. They take up Scripture again right? They're reading it through a new lens. They're asking, what does it mean now? What have we missed? And they allow the Holy Spirit to guide their discernment. They allow the Holy Spirit to help them answer the question, what is God up to now? I, I, I'm going to... Um, You'll probably be glad that this series of sermons is over for a number of reasons, the least of which is these uh, five sermons have been longer than any of the sermons I've preached to you over the, the last year. Um, let, me, let me, two final observations here in the teaching for this morning. First, I want you to notice that when they decide in Acts 15, the church decides, they choose to change their practice. Their practice had been one thing, grounded in Scripture and in what they had always done as the people of God. They changed their practice. But, hear this. They also moderate that change. So, here's the change. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And so, we're not going to require them to keep the law in the same ways that we have kept it before. That's what that means. But, tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogue on every Sabbath. Do you hear that? We're going to change our practice in these ways, but we're also not going to change it in these other ways. That's what's going on. It sounds like they're striking a little bit, they're setting a direction, making a change, it's a significant one, but there's also a bit of compromise in it too. They could have disregarded and set aside all of the ways that they had previously understood and practiced the law. So roll back one slide for just one second. But instead, they affirmed the law of Moses, right? In these ways. Uh, that it's been preached in every city and that it's taught in every uh, synagogue on every Sabbath. 
What, what I want to say, which is what the next slide is, you've already seen that, is that sometimes we are compromising, and that's okay. This, this idea that, uh, this sort of idealistic notion that if you change one thing, it means that you have to change everything, uh, doesn't stand up in Acts 15. Uh, that will bother those of us who are the more pure idealist. <laughs> you say, oh, no, once you kind of have that ideal, you have to be true to it in every way. And I would just say that as the Holy Spirit moderates among the people of God, it's not always like that, right? And that's okay. We make room. Even as we're changing practice, we make room. And the other thing um, what, um, I want to say is that in Acts 15, they, they take care to communicate clearly and well. So in the room, in the moment, there's sort of a, a sense-taking, sense-making articulation of, hey, this is what we think God is up to. This is what we think we should do. And everybody hears that, and then they take care to say, let's write this down and make sure everyone understands. We, there's an obligation to communicate clearly. And so guess what they do? They write a letter. Now, I know a number of churches that have had the same conversation we've been having the last five weeks, and they come to a point where, and, and some people like, uh, go, oh, there's the dreaded letter that's coming, <laughs> right? There's some letter that's coming. It feels weighty. Um, but notice in the letter that they write, it's a, unlike my sermon, it's a very short letter. <laughs> it's brief. It's not, it, it cannot, you cannot in a letter try and say everything with every nuance in every way. What you can try and do is say, we just want to be clear. I don't know if, if that meets the best, most um, affirmed communication theory <laughs> or change management theory, but I do know in Acts 15, their attempt is to be clear. And being clear when conversations are difficult or decisions are hard, being clear is kind. I didn't make that up. That's Brene Brown, for those of you who know Brene Brown's work. Being clear is kind. So as we move to the close of this series and really this process that stretches back behind us for a couple of years, and then more recently in a period of, of uh, the leadership discerning for 40 days, and then almost more than another 40 days of us thinking together in this way, of gathering up sort of the, the whole witness of Scripture, of listening to the narrative of experience, of thinking about um, how we come back to Scripture and what God is up to us now. It's my hope and prayer <clears throat> that we will, we will um, discern carefully and wisely by the Spirit's leading. And that um, we will embrace a moment where, at least for where we are now, there's clarity, some clarity about where we are. And with joy in our hearts and gladness, because we trust God, not ourselves, we trust God's mercy and God's grace, and that even 
should we feel like? I'm not sure I agree with this or that it's right, that the grace of God covers us. Thanks be to God. Because I could name any, I could start listing any number of things that I would say, I'm not sure I agree with that, but there's grace for us all. I'm not sure, I'm not confident that the church has got this right. But we do it for now. But thanks be to God, the love of God enfolds us and holds us together. There's grace, friends. There's mercy for us all. And we move towards uh, God's life together at the table, leaning on that mercy and that grace. So let me offer uh, this prayer. And then, uh, Raymond, you'll come and, and lead us, and we'll move towards the table together as our time together in worship today draws towards a close. Let's pray. Oh, God, you are our God. Earnestly, we seek you. Earnestly, we seek you. Redeem us in your loving kindness in your long patience with us reconcile us and restore us that we might bear your image in ever increasing glory until you make us one with you oh god you are our god earnestly we seek you And Jesus, in your tender mercy, cover us and hold us. We confess that we see through a glass dimly, that we get it wrong sometimes, but we're leaning in, Jesus. We want to follow you, and we're so dependent upon your mercy. Jesus, grant us your mercy. And Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. In fact, we are only here because you have summoned us by your Spirit to be here. We only step forward day by day, moment by moment, and move in the world as your image bearers, because you, Holy Spirit, indwell us and unite us and bear the image of God in us. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. You are present here. Lead us, Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.